Ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek 5'11", 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous 5'11", 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. Manscaped product alert. Wee-oo-wee-oo. Lads, you asked for it, and they listened. Our friends at Manscaped are bringing the ultra-smooth package to Australia. It's time to stop, drop, and order this premium shaving kit. Everyone knows by now that the Lawnmower 4.0 is the best electric shave for your balls. But if you're looking for a closer shave to go bare down there, then the ultra-smooth package is the perfect set. It's time to save that bush of yours and get right to the roots with a discount just for you. Get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code PIGSPEAK. All of these uh, vegan, cruelty-free, and sulfate-free products are included. So you know your manhood is in good hands without compromise. That's the crop exfoliator, the crop gel, uh, and the crop shaver. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PEAKSPEAK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code PEAKSPEAK at manscaped.com. Smooth out your fellas with the now available ultra smooth package from the fellas at Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. See, if I was adequately caffeinated, I would have read the blurb above what I read and realized that it was referring to something else rather than just going straight off the dog point. Unfortunately, no, I, liked, I liked the way you went. I thought it was, it added a certain uh, element of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it was improvised. Improvised. Improvisation. That was the word I was looking for. It was improvised, but it would have been much smoother had I just downed a nice warm cup of prism coffee. Indeed. I just opened their website to tell you about <coughs> the new options I've uh, been sampling. The, is it Wilder Lazo? Yeah, we're going with that. Uh, which is a Colombian caramel cherry orange. Delicious, both black and with milk. Amazing. I've been enjoying it quite a lot. The code there is also PeakSpeak, and you'll save some dollars on some delicious coffee. Yes, indeedy. Then that, in theory, means we are recording, which means we're back with another episode of Peak Speak. This time, Sans Thomas, because he's too important to be in the podcast anymore, but actually is like overseas doing uh, workshops in the UK, which is cool. But I'm here with good friend of the show. I don't know why we're going with that, Monica, but we are. Uh, it works. Annie, yeah, I think it works. Annie Short, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hello, and thank you. Thank you for having me on. I was very excited when you asked me. Mostly because like it's on. an excuse to buy a fancy new microphone. Yes, that's <laughs> precisely. Anyway, I'm, I'm all for having a good excuse to buy new toys. Uh, that's basically what I've turned my business into is just the place that I buy all the toys and leave them in and then charge people to use them. It's great. Yeah, it is a really good way of doing things. It's like you can buy also like really nice gym clothes, really nice gym equipment <laughs> and just put it as a business expense. I um, had a conversation with my partner not that long ago. We'd, we bought like a dual stack cable pulley, uh, you know, thing. 
And I was like, I, I feel like it's like one of those pieces of equipment that we've been missing for a while. And it's kind of like really filled a hole in what we've got. Yeah. Maybe I just like won't buy anything for a little while or like, Maybe knowing me, I'll probably like open an internet browser next week and see something on sale and just buy it because I want it. And she was like, can you just like not fucking buy equipment just because you want it? And like, maybe just like buy the things that people need and stuff like that. I was like, I'm sorry, but the business model from day one has been <laughs> me buying shit that I want because I want it. <laughs> me fulfilling my like, own needs. Yeah. And then working it into people's programs. Yeah. Me fulfilling my own needs and then finding people who have similar needs who also yeah. want to pay me money. <laughs> exactly. This, this is my tax deductible playground and I will not have that sort of energy here. It works. It, it works. It and look how far so it's got you. Yes. So far. So good. Mm. But uh, before we go too deeply into just reminiscing about the good old days of powerlifting, uh, let's give everyone a rundown on who you are and uh, and where you're at and those sort of things. Okay. All right. So I'm Annie um, and Shara and I go back a very long time. I don't know if I actually, if I met, I think I probably knew Thomas a little bit before I met you. That um, makes sense given proximity. Yeah, because I was I was living on the Gold Coast and I actually trained under Thomas at Gold Coast. Bar, uh, no, PTC Gold Coast it was at that point. Yeah. Um, and then it transitioned to Zero Weakness much later. Um, so, yeah, I'm Annie. For those who don't know me, I used to compete in powerlifting, um, have since transitioned to bodybuilding, competitive bodybuilding in the IFBB wellness division. Um, and, yeah, I've been lifting weight since I was about 13, um, now 28. So it's been a quite a long time, um, used to coach, used to own my own powerlifting gym, um, in Brisbane and about six, five or six years ago, I moved down to Sydney and, um, have been working out of base gym for a number of years, working and training out of base gym. And then more recently I have, um, set up my own freelance, uh, content writing and yeah, content creation business specifically for, um, people within the fitness industry and in particular people who are in the strength world. Yeah. Awesome. And it's been a really interesting, I think for all of us looking back on the, you know, 10 plus years, like I did my yeah. first powerlifting comp in 2010. Uh, yeah. We did like the first GPC nationals was like 2012. Uh, and it seems like a lifetime ago. I look at like powerlifting as it is now and obviously still being heavily involved in the sport. Look at it, and I've said to many relatively new lifters, like I don't really think you realize how good you've got it in this sport at the moment. Like it's yeah, seems like a totally different world to the world that we sort of came of age in when it comes to that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I had this conversation with someone the other day. She was talking about someone who, like, you know, she coaches women, and she said something about like, oh yeah, you know, we've got like some of our not as strong you know, girls that we've got who, you know, they might be deadlifting 60 or 80 kilos. And I was like, it's actually crazy because 10 years ago, that would have been unheard of for a woman to ever even deadlift that much. So it's like, it's a huge testament that that's now like the sort of not, not saying that she, you know, she wasn't saying that they were weak or anything like that. No, she was no. just saying that they're like on the sort of more novice end. And I was like, that used to be the ceiling for women yeah. is like a hundred kilo deadlift. Like, and I told her this story. I remember back in the day, I would think it was like 2013. Um, I was at then PTC Brisbane, now Valhalla strength. Um, and I was really good friends with Tara, um, who was living with Scott. Um, 
And Tara at a New Year's Eve PB session that we had, she squatted 150 kilos. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is, I mean, she was the first female in Australia to squat 150. And I just remember being like, that is, I can't even imagine ever putting that much weight on my back. (laughs) It's like now, like you don't even like, that's just doesn't even win you a competition like that. It's, it's crazy. And, and, you know, Tara was one of the leading people in the sport and yeah, I was telling this person, I was like, you used to be able to win. Like I won pro or six with a 452 total. Like that wouldn't get me on the podium now. Like probably not even top five. No, no. And it like, yeah. And that not only that, but it like, I got this huge amount of cash prize money for doing that. And like, I mean, I got in the sport at the right time. That's all I have to say. I was there at a good time. I think, I think the two right times to get into a sport like powerlifting are either before it's really popular, like we did, or when you're really old. Cause I had this conversation with uh, a client of mine who did her first powerlifting comp at 64. And we had this conversation about like going to uh, GPC, uh, like age nationals. She was going to break all the world records. She was like, surely yeah. not. I was like, how many of your friends lift weights? <laughs> yeah. She's like, like none. I was like, cool. So how many of them have like ever thought about lifting weights competitively? And then she's like, oh, none. I was like, yeah, exactly. There aren't that many people that are your yeah. age at your weight lifting weights competitively. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it, more broadly on the the female performance side, I have uh, had this conversation with a few people, and it, and I I don't remember where I read the idea initially, but the there was this uh, argument about the uh, performance gap we see between male and female top tier sport in terms of like measurable outcomes like speed and power and those yeah. sort of things actually being perhaps or potentially less biologically driven than uh, we think because you look at the generation of women that we have as professional athletes at this point in time, unlike the women who are like, say my son's age, who like he's four turning five. Yeah. The women in his world will grow up idolizing women like that who are like fucking phenomenal athletes yeah but what you get is a whole generation of women who are way more engaged in the concept of performance physically and sport and those sort of things from a much earlier age and potentially that we see that performance gap decrease because like and quite potentially quite substantially because so much of what we consider to be biological is actually way more societal and yeah. sort of, uh, a part of that overwhelming narrative. Yeah. I completely, completely agree with that concept. And like, it's no coincidence that I was raised in a family of three boys. I was the only girl. And like, my parents never treated me differently. Yeah, My dad was raised in a very feminist household with, you know, five sisters and um, no brothers. And my mom has ADHD. I've got ADHD. And I always say like women with ADHD are like born feminists because we're really bad at the things that society expects women to be good at. And we tend to be very passionate about whatever we're passionate about. And yeah. Yeah. I remember at school we had, um, I went to like this private school and I really wanted to play. I wanted for us to have a female rugby team and they just didn't, they said, no, cause you're ladies and we don't, you know, ladies don't do that. And I said, okay. So I went and I started a petition. I went around the school and I started a petition to get us to play rugby and eventually, um, got enough signatures and we had a women's rugby team and we weren't anywhere as good because, 
my brothers um, who are not into sport at all now um, were playing rugby from grade one. Yeah. And as a female, I kind of joined in with the grade seven boys, but like I wasn't like, it was very weird for me to be doing that. Yeah. Um, and I was the most, one of the most experienced females on the team because I'd played lunchtime rugby with some of the boys in grade seven. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's why the girls aren't good at rugby because yeah. we haven't been given the opportunities to. Yeah. I, I had a sim, uh, an experience watching the women's uh, Brumbies team, me and a couple of guys I went to school with and I went to like an all boys school, played rugby all through school. And that was like yeah. the thing that we all did. Uh, and we went and watched this women's rugby game and without wanting to come off really like negatively, it looked, it was like watching high school rugby, right? In the, yeah. the in, and not in every instance, but in, probably the majority of the players, they were at the level that I would have thought we were at in year 11 or 12, right? Yeah. Because at that stage, we'd all been playing for years. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of these women are women, like one of them uh, who was playing for the Brumbies for a while uh, was a pal of Frodo from Dubbo who then yeah. got into playing footy. And that's often the case, right? They've come from other areas. They don't, they yeah. haven't grown up with the ball in their hand and, you know, actually training for performance and doing all those sort of things. So I think it's yeah. really going to be incredibly interesting to watch the gender gap change significantly in terms of overall performance with women like Serena and those sort of yeah. insanely phenomenal athletes leading the way of a, then a generation of women who grow up in gyms with bars in their hands and training yeah. hard and doing all that stuff. It's going to be really cool. Yeah. And I think like when you were saying that, like, you saw these people and they were like at the top level in the women's sport and they were not, you know, at the level that you'd have expected them to be at. Like, what do we always say as coaches who've been in this for like, you know, I just said, I've been lifting weights for 15 years. I got my PT qualifications when I was 15. Yeah. Um, we say to people, if you do one thing for long enough, and a lot of us will admit that, like I've heard you say, you're like, I, I was quite a mediocre lifter, but yeah. you just did it for long enough and yeah, you just yeah, did exactly. stop. And that's the thing that makes you good at things when you actually just don't stop doing something. And so, yeah, women who are now giving these opportunities earlier, they're going to be able, you know, for me, I've lifted weight since I was 13. People, oh my goodness, how are you? I'm like, I actually should be stronger than I am, but uh, thank you. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that that's huge. And on that, I think that powerlifting is definitely leading the way in that regard. Like I, um, I remember saying this when, you know, like I said, I, Pro Raw 6 back in 2014, I can't believe that was like eight years ago. That's crazy. Um, I won the $7,000 to, cause I got the, the you know, crown. triple crown if you won yep. states, nationals and pro raw in the same year. Yep. And I won seven grand and that made me the highest paid powerlift in Australian history, <laughs> um, which a, I mean, look how far the sports come since then. Yeah, yeah. B like I was a female in a masculine sport who won seven grand. And I just think that that's a testament to the people who are in charge in powerlifting. That's a testament to the sport as a whole. Um, and you know, I was listening to one of actually your podcasts recently and Thomas was saying how um, women tend to bring more spectators to competitions yeah. and women are what's growing this sport. And yeah, I know yeah. people um, like a mutual friend of ours, Andy, I know that um, they were doing some research on like men versus women, how competitive each division is. The women are really pushing the sport. And um, I think that is as a result of the fact that the sport gave an opportunity for a female to be higher paid than the males. And obviously now I think that the there's men who are probably more paid, but like 
that was the first big prize money that was ever given out and it was given to a female. And I think that's a huge testament to, um, yeah, the sport yeah, and especially could- the sport in Australia. Yeah, and, and I think that's it's the thing that's always kept powerlifting as close to, as it is to my heart uh, yeah. has been how incredibly inclusive it is. Like it is yeah. truly one of the most accessible sports in the world uh, yeah. because if you've walked into a gym at some point in your life and picked up a barbell, you're probably capable of competing in powerlifting on some yeah. level. And for me, that like it's been the driving force behind growing our gym and we now have – novice comps that are like 60 or 70 people at a time. Yeah, We run like seven or eight comps a year in Canberra and have been fairly instrumental in, in building the sport in terms of into what it is now, because I've just encouraged a ton of people who didn't have any direction in what they wanted to get out of training Yeah, to walk through the door and be like, all right, well, here's something you can train for that like in the scheme of things doesn't actually fucking matter. Like yeah. you know, it, it is just a sport that really no one cares about. Um, and what that gives you is the freedom to give it as much meaning as you want it to have yeah, and then yeah. be in a position to have something to work towards. And that feeling that yeah. we've all had of stepping off a platform after, you know, both a really successful meet and a really devastatingly bad meet. Yeah. <laughs> it, like it's a great learning experience. You know, I, yeah. I attribute almost all of the important lessons I've learned in my life to uh, some form of competitive sport and or training because, I'm 33 turning 34 and about to tick over 20 years of lifting. I've been playing yeah. sports since I was like five. Uh, it's yeah. just the the constant in my life is pursuing performance in some respect like that. And for me, that's then been what we've built the gym on is that idea. Yeah, for sure. And I, yeah, I can think of so many things. Like for me, it's taught me a lot of like fear management stuff. And yeah, yeah. also like people are talking about, you know, um, meditation, calming your mind and things like that. I bombed my first powerlifting meet. I did terribly. I went two for nine, which is literally the worst that you can do. Because if I had a bombed out on my squats, I wouldn't have been able to go ahead to my bench. But I did. I did one squat, one bench and no deadlift. So I went the worst I could have. I went four for nine in my first meet and nearly bombed in the squats. I squatted high in my first two attempts. That's Uh, what I did as well. Yeah. Yeah. That does help a little bit. Um, Excellent. But- but yeah, what I, then I went the next day and I went and deadlifted. I think I missed, I had a, a 140 opener and I uh, missed it three times. And then I went into the gym the next day and I put it for a triple and it taught me, I mean, a few things because I firstly realized that, oh, I was using slightly different equipment in training. So I needed to, you know, tweak performance and everything. But the big thing that I, that I learned was I got over aroused for that competition. Yeah. So it taught me all this, like, okay, for these next couple of competitions, I need to learn these mindfulness techniques and I need to, you know, um, practice this kind of thing. And I got, I, I think I won a lot of powerlifting competitions that I had no right to win. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cause you're a people, better competitor. Like I was that, a better competitor. People yeah, yeah. were a lot stronger than me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I learned how to, you know, from that bad experience, I learned how to take huge jumps on my deadlifts because from then I would only open on a really conservative opener because I knew I got nervous. Yeah. So that taught me how the skill of competing and it's, you know, that kind of thing can be applied to so many different things. I've yeah. applied that to my uni exams. Yeah, yeah. I've applied it to, you know, don't just get, you know, it's the same kind of idea. Don't just get strong, get good at competing. Mm-hmm. Don't just get smart, get good at your exams. Yeah. And with business, you can apply it to things, you know, be really good at running a business, not just being a good coach or being a b- good person or whatever, be good at running a business and how to kind of target that skill set. Yeah. I've, I've said for a long time that I identify as an athlete and have for an incredibly long time. Like I am one of the most competitive people you'll ever meet. Uh, <laughs> I can and, testify to that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and vice versa. <laughs> yeah. 
exactly. If there was a competition for who's the most competitive, I feel like we'd be in the top two. Um, but anyway, I I have learned that the same thing, right? Is the way I see the idea of being an athlete is that willingness to turn up and make it happen regardless of the circumstances. And yeah. I think that's always been the thing for me that makes powerlifting really cool because it doesn't fucking matter what what is going on in your life. That meet day still happens on the meet day. Yeah. And, you know, in a gym environment, you can do like you like you did. You can set it up perfectly and, and get the PB comfortably. But then if it happens on the platform, it's a different experience, you know. Yeah. I had a conversation with one of our lifters about uh, the, this same thing, right, getting pumped up for comps and stuff like that. So, you know, like you've only ever competed here. I, in 10, 10 years of com- uh, competing, I think I slept in my own bed twice before a competition. Yeah. Uh, because I, it was at a point where I was running all the comps in yeah. Canberra. So I just never competed in Canberra. I always yeah. had to travel to compete. And that is, again, a di- it's a different skill set. It is yeah. you know, being comfortable in that environment. And I think that for me is the thing that you can get from pursuing performance and i think specifically in a competitive aspect but once you've learned that in the competitive environment you can apply it outside of that you know like i i don't necessarily need the competitive aspect of sport anymore to push hard in training yeah i'm just competing against myself these days yeah uh, but i think that for me has been the been the most valuable lesson is how to be an athlete and how to turn up and make it work when it counts and so now i have that confidence in my own ability to make things happen when they need to happen because yeah. And I've done that in so many conditions that were like perfect. And then in lots of conditions that were very, very not perfect and often adverse to performance. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think further on that, like, I don't know about you, but when I first started um, competing, it was almost like there was, there were these really um, successful coaches who seemed to be magic. You know, they could, they could get someone to peak or, you know, I know with me, that was before many people knew much about lifting technique. And I remember working with Thomas for the first time and he just revolutionized my world. Remember once I, ca- I was talking to him and he said, oh, well, if we, if we improve your technique, it'll get you stronger. And I was like, how can that work? <laughs> I was like, my knees were touching when I was squatting. I was good. I was strong for the terrible way that I was moving. But, um, but yeah, I just found him magic. And it, it was like, how can people peak? How can people get how can people control what seems to be uncontrollable? You know, like as a lifter who just goes to the gym, you might be strong one day, you might be not strong the next day, and you've got no idea how that works. But like with powerlifting, you can learn how to make the uncontrollable controllable as well. And I think that kind of just like expands on what you were saying um, is you can learn how to, um, by getting to understand things, you can learn how to make those snap decisions, those snap judgments, and you can learn how to manipulate a situation so that it, it works out well. And I think that's just performance in any aspect. Yeah. But powerlifting is a really clear, very clear way of understanding it. I think because as a sport, it exists in its entirety in one place in yeah. that you look like, and this is the, the confusing aspect that a lot of people have when it comes to training for sport for other things is you look at something like powerlifting that is a sport that exists entirely inside a gym. Yeah. And so the way you view training for powerlifting is very different to the way you view training for some other sport because in powerlifting and or like bodybuilding, weightlifting, strongman, like the strength sports, if you will. Yeah. Um, because everything happens with a barbell or some variation of it, you have to look at things very differently. But when it comes to training general population, people who are trying to be athletic in something else, 
there are so many other factors that go into it as well. In yeah. powerlifting, it's like it's very measurable. It's very like yeah. you can you can make it reasonably predictable for the most yeah. part. Um, and especially if you're observant and diligent in recording training data and things like that, it is actually quite predictable, which is how yeah. a, a lot of us as coaches get away with programming lots of people at a time because the vast majority of the thing doesn't change that much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it, it is when you control those variables, pretty predictable. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's something that you can carry over to like, you know, I think a lot of the really good coaches think like that and that's what's made them successful in business as well. Yeah. Um, like that ability to carry things over into running a coaching business or even if they're working a business outside of powerlifting. Um, yeah, even even like you mentioned bodybuilding there and I think bodybuilding is a great example because like the way that you walk on stage, like, you know, in my division we, we wear heels, the way that you walk on stage can affect your placings, the way that you... Um, where your hair and makeup can affect your placings, the relationship that you have with the judges. And a lot of people say, you know, really that's a big issue that they have with bodybuilding is that the judging is biased, which it is. Um, but I mean, as a competitor, you have it fully within your control to know, to meet the judges, to give them a good impression of you. You have like, you know, I know sometimes it'll be like a case of doing the same competition every year so that the judges get to know you, they recognize you. Um, I dyed my hair red <laughs> so that I would stand out on stage, like even things like that. You know, there's all these little things, which bikini color do you pick? There's all these little things that I think can um, contribute to you standing out. And I've worked with some, like my coach is a really, really high level bodybuilder. And that's the kind of thing that he, he talks about. He's like, this isn't pretty, but if you want to make it to the top, these are, you know, some of the things that you can do. Um, and say what you want. Like it's the sport that people compete in. And those are, those are the rules. I remember someone I knew he was um, a powerlifter and he would go and give the judges a big hug before his competition every time. And he's like, if it comes down to a fine call, I don't want to be like, I want them to like me and to want to, you know, yeah. give me a green, a white light. So yeah, I think that those sorts of things in, from a business perspective as well, like that, there's so many little yeah, it's a weird sport in that regard. Like a bodybuilding in particular is a very yeah. weird sport, but it just, it appeals to my like love of like fine tuning little things and that, yeah, it's a, which then can carry over. Cause you know, that can be within a business perspective of, you know, like if you go to a meeting, which clothes do you wear? How do you introduce yourself? How does, you know, from a, like we're talking about you know, I'm doing content creation now from that perspective, how easy it is, for, how easy is it for your content to be read? How, um, you know, do you have a good microphone that people can hear you through things like that? Um, that that's yeah. The interesting lessons that you never thought you were going to learn from bodybuilding or powerlifting. Yeah. And so to pivot then into the discussion around content creation and stuff like that, You've obviously been doing the like the freelance thing for a relatively short period of time in the scheme of things, yeah. but you have been creating fitness content and that sort of stuff for quite some time. Yeah. Where do you feel like, because I know it, like content writers and, and copywriters and stuff exist continually all across the spectrum, but you're certainly one of the first people I've seen do the niche it into our world, so to speak, because yeah. we, we live in a fairly segmented area of the fitness industry. So where do you feel like 
uh, perhaps the people in our world are lacking when it comes to creating content more broadly when it compares to other aspects of the industry? Or what do you feel like people are doing wrong most obviously to begin with? I, do you know what? I actually think that the fitness industry is leading in content creation. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I was talking to someone recently um, and was doing like the, whenever I onboard a new client, the first thing we do is like, we go through a strategy call to like go through all of their, like who they're trying to target, what their goals are with their business, all this kind of stuff. And I was doing that with him. And the interesting thing was, I said, you know, in the software development world, who else, who's your competition and what kind of content are they doing? He said, they're not, they're not doing any content. And normally when I talk to someone in the fitness world, what, who's your competition and what content are they doing? This person here's doing this, this person here's doing this, this person here's doing this. And so the, the approach that I have to um, when, I work with an, when, when I work with a new client is very similar to what I was saying there with the powerlifting, the bodybuilding is like, let's get everything down that you're currently doing. Let's figure out what, where your gaps are and what you could be doing better. And then let's strategize according to that, according to who your target market is, according to who, um, you know, because the whole idea of producing content is it's this idea of creating stuff that people want to listen to, want to read, want to consume, to build trust with your brand, and then attracting the right people um, into your brand. So you as a powerlifting gym, you probably wouldn't want to be attracting people who hate powerlifting. So your content has such a strong message of powerlifting that that's who you attract. And that seems like a very basic, simple thing with content creation. But, you know, talking to this um, person who is running a software development company, um, they don't really have competition who are producing content. And it was very much like, okay, there's some low hanging fruit here. And I think that that's the case for a lot of industries. How much have you seen, how much content have you seen produced by dentists Yeah, about interesting stuff? You know, the only thing they've got, the social proof that they've got is their before and afters. That's all they've got. How much content have you seen produced by GPs, um, by building companies? How much have you seen produced, you know, even like dog trainers? (laughs) I've just seen your dog and my dogs right next to me as well. So how much have you seen by dog trainers? Not much. So I actually think that the fitness industry is leading with it, but I think that that in in and of itself is creating a very rapidly changing um, uh, arena for content creation in the fitness industry. And with that comes developing frustrations because of the way that the content, you know, it's, it's a very flooded market now um, because people have just, uh, yeah, again, I think they're really leading the way with content creation. And I think content marketing is really, um, you know, with everything being online and this realization that you can actually, um, if you've got an online coaching business, you don't even need to be marketing locally to people. You can market to people overseas. And so there's this whole world opened up where, you know, you're able to attract people from all over the world, the right people for you. But what that's done is it, it's made content creation very, um, of almost the content creation within the fitness industry has become quite flooded. Yeah. And I think as a result of that, there's become this push for gyms and coaches to create content um, to keep up and often just for the sake of creating mm. content. And then what happens there is they might not be getting the results that they want because they're not actually targeting the content to their person. And like we're having that little, uh, we kind of touched on it before we started recording this idea of like um, the, um, the algorithms driving your behavior and they, you know, they're producing this content that maybe isn't consistent with their 
um, values or consistent with their brand. And then, yeah, there's this push to produce content. And then what happens is there are really good coaches out there as well who aren't necessarily producing content who are just like, screw that. I don't want to exist in this world where there's all these like um, people who've never stepped under a barbell to giving advice on how to do a barbell squat. Like, no, I don't want to be part of that world. And so as a result, this echo chamber just um, kind of continues around. And I think that's probably, you know, if you think back to when we were starting out, the issue was that we couldn't find information. Yeah. Like a T Nation, but the guys on T Nation, some of them, like for all the all the things you can say negatively about it. Like there were some, you know, people with doctorate degrees and, yeah, you know, um, the like pro sports coaches. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of stuff. yeah. I remember I had, I think it was like Dave Tate's bench guide when I was like yeah, yeah. 15. I printed it off. I was like used to all the paper in my parents' printer, all the ink is like super big guide. And I, that was what I just used. And like, think about it now, his way of benching was very like his way. Um, but that was all I had. But now we've got a million different people saying to do it a million different ways. Um, and I think that the, yeah, so the issue before was that um, because content marketing was so new, it it was this, you know, a few people jumped on it early, um, but now it's become flooded and that's creating its own kind of issues. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if this happens in other industries, if dentists start producing content and then that becomes flooded. Your blog yeah. used to make you stand out, but now having a blog doesn't make you stand out. It's yeah. like tattoos. Tattoos used to make you stand out in the fitness industry. Now you almost stand out if you don't have a tattoo. It's that kind of idea. Yeah, I um, I certainly feel like I've I've ridden that whole roller coaster over the many years that I've been like had a social media account for the gym and and things like that because I certainly went through a phase of like creating content because I felt like I needed to create content yeah. and then just getting the shits with it. Uh, yeah. And often just being in a position where I didn't feel like I had anything to say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely fucking do because I make a living saying this shit constantly. And so for me, it was the the big light bulb moment was spending more time thinking about the conversations I was having every day and realizing that actually what I can do, and it's something I've been doing more regularly recently, is just like spending half a day writing an answer to a common question like that yeah. I've had a conversation about in the last week yeah. and had a conversation that clearly has had a positive impact on that person, right? And in some yeah. cases, it's been as, as simple as like when I did the other day about stretching. Yeah. Like this, this person asked me about like, oh, do you like stretch after you run? I was like, no, I fucking hate stretching. It's really boring. Yeah. And this person was like, had been feeling really guilty about not stretching. For them, it was life-changing. Yeah. It was a life-changing little. Um, and I was like, no, you don't yeah. have to do any of that shit. You can fucking do whatever you want. It's fine. Yeah. And yeah. they were like, oh. And then I was like, fuck, all right. Well, I have to like have this conversation because clearly there are people who, and I think this is like the problem you have being in the industry for so long is like, I am in a position where there are things that I consider to be just like, common knowledge, common knowledge yeah. that I like that you don't need to stretch ever if you don't want to I just assume that's a thing that people understand but then I recognize that actually like my understanding of how the human body works and all of these things that go into it have been built up over 20 fucking years of yeah. expo and not just exposure to doing it but exposure to like actively pursuing knowledge because it was the fucking thing that I obsessed about forever um and so, yeah, forgetting as a coach that knows quite a bit 
that some of these yeah. conversations are actually really simple and don't have to be nuanced and complex around, you know, all this jargon about different positions or different ways to do things. You can actually just have really simple conversations with people that really deeply resonate. Yeah. And I think there's kind of, there's two sides, there's like two kind of points from that. And the first one is that I think that a lot of us think that, you know, we have to create this content that's going to change the world and that it's going to, you know, because back when we were like the, the teenation articles that we had, we found one and it changed the world. Um, and I think that's not really possible anymore. And it's also not really the goal because if, if your content, the goal of your content is to get more people to your business, all you need is like, let's say you've got a post that you put up and it gets five likes and half of those will not half, but let's say, cause that would be weird if half a person signed up, but let's say two of those people signed up. That's now more income that you're having versus a post that got a hundred likes that doesn't get anyone converted. Like it doesn't actually have to be, um, changing the world. It can just be changing um, a small portion of the world for someone. And I think trying to be something for everyone is, is a mistake that people make as well, you know, trying to change the world for everyone, but you actually just need to be everything for some people. And understanding that there's this big, big like scope out there of people that you can work with. And like, again, um, on this podcast that I listened to of you, of you and Thomas talking about um, the, things that like new coaches can like tips to help new coaches. It was a recent one that you guys did. Yeah. Um, you spoke about like this competitive feeling where, you know, you feel competitive just naturally with other people. And I think that's what a lot of coaches have is that they need to compete. They need to compete. And I think one of the brilliant ways that you can work around that is to niche and to really understand your niche and to know who you're working with. And I think that we're moving into this world, like thinking about the dentist example again, Imagine if you went to a dentist that specialized in teeth for powerlifters. What does that mean? I don't know, but I'd go there. <laughs> like, I don't know what powerlifting causes teeth problems, but. I definitely it, used to grind the shit out of my teeth. I reckon there's something there. I think there's something there. So having that niche, it now attracts, and then it would be a, very off-putting to people who aren't powerlifters, but that's why you pick a niche where there's enough people to be working with. And with, you know, dentist is obviously a face-to-face -face thing, but with what we're doing. It's coaching. It's online coaching. You can work with people all over the world. So just understanding your niche and understanding that your content doesn't actually have to change the world for everyone. Yeah. It can just be something that really um, speaks to your niche. And the thing that you said then of how you sat down after you were talking with your clients, that is brilliant. And that's normally um, one of the recommendations I give to people when they're coming to, and they're looking for content help, because if your clients are having that problem, probably pretty likely that someone else is having that problem as well. Um, so I think that's like, if there's coaches listening to this and they want one tip that they can take away, I think that's a great tip. Um, at the end of each week or at the end of each day, think about three things that came up in your face-to-face -face coaching and write that down. And now and try and explain it to your mother who doesn't know anything about powerlifting. And that's the way you need to be explaining it because you have to learn to um, meet people where they're at as well. Yeah. So um yeah, that's, I think that's what you said there as well about you are so in this world that you forget that people don't know these things. I think that's something that I really have learned from, you know, being in the powerlifting world for so long. I'm friends with all these really cool people. Like I'm friends with some of the 
top powerlifters because I got in early enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I've been out Stunning clubbing. With, it's the key. Yeah, <laughs> clubbing with Ed Cohen. I've been for yeah. drinks and surfers with Andre Malaysia. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. worked at base gym with the strongest people in the, you know, country. Yeah. And something I learned there was like, I'd go around and now that powerlifting is becoming more popular, I'd be talking to these people and they'd be like, oh my goodness, you talked to this person. What were they like? And I was like, oh, they're, they're cool. Like they're my friend. And it, it's, it's like what it made me realize is there's all these facets to these people that people just want to be, want to get, like want to see, want to grab a hold of. And as a coach, there's, it's almost like you're that famous person and there's all these things that you think, you know, people buy famous people's used clothing and dirty underwear and stuff. It's like you, there's so many things that you've got that you would just casually say offhand to someone that would mean the world to someone who needs to hear that. Um, and it's just being switching your mindset away from like, I've got nothing to say to like, what, what are the things that I'm saying every day could be helpful to someone? Um, and I think that's also how you avoid that. Like we spoke before that echo chamber that um, people just saying stuff for the sake of staying, saying stuff. What often happens there is it's not them. It's not them that's saying it. It's not their words. It's not their thoughts. And it feels a bit gross. Like people can feel that dissonance, but by saying things that, you know, genuinely help your clients, hopefully that will genuinely help someone who's reading it. Um, and it might help one person. And if that person signs up, then you've got another client. And that's the, obviously the goal of social media. The goal is not um, if you're trying to run your social media for business, the goal is not to become an influencer and to be known all around the world. Um, it, I mean, it might be your goal, but it's that's not necessarily going to help your business. So, like, again, what we were talking about before, like, if you want to be good at powerlifting, train for a powerlifting competition. Don't just train to be strong. If you want to be, if you want you to use your um, social media to help your business, use it to help your business. Don't just grow your following or whatever. Figure out which things you want to achieve with it and then measure those metrics. Yeah, for sure. And that's, I think I've had this conversation a lot uh, with my partner who has like zero interest in fitness or training or anything like that. Um, yeah. And it's been really good for me, I think, and a really important part of my development, both as a person and as a professional uh, has been that like my closest friends and my like real inner circle exist entirely outside of the world that I live in from yeah. a professional standpoint. Um, and that's actually incredibly useful for me in both in terms of having the ability to create space between the echo chamber and not. Yeah. Uh, and then B for being able to have a discussion with my partner who knows fucking nothing about it. Like, does this make sense to you? Because yeah. if I can make it make sense to you, then it's fine. And like, I can do that. And I think that's where it's it's one of those things that you can potentially, I think, miss out on uh, not having had the opportunity to train like general public in person. Yeah. Is like being in a position where you ask someone to do something in one way and they like, I don't understand. And then yeah. you say it the other way that you know how to describe it. And then they go, I still don't understand. And then you try the last, like last ditch effort. You're like, well, fuck, I've explained it the three ways I know how to think I've about got it. Nothing else. <laughs> Where the fuck do we go from here? And yeah. having the ability to then be able to think on your feet and, and change the environment in a way that 
like, and especially with people who are nervous about being in a gym for the first time, who don't want to be made to feel stupid or incapable because yeah. they can't do something. Cause like actually, and like, I'm sure every coach I've ever spoken to has had this experience at some point where you've become incredibly frustrated with the person in front of you for not being able to do the thing that you're trying to teach them to do. Yeah. Only to then walk away and be like, God damn it. I'm the fucking problem. That was me. That was yeah. when, when you do find that thing that works, that, really challenges you to think about the thing. It's like when you're studying at, you know, if you've, if you've studied something at uni, for example, anatomy, that's what, you know, I did a degree in exercise science. So I did a lot of anatomy study um, is like, draw it. Don't just look at it on the picture, draw it, trace it out on another person, paint it on another person. Um, and that helps you learn it by constructing. It's almost like in your mind, you're constructing this 3d model rather than just seeing it from one two dimensional picture. And what that actually does is it makes you a better coach. So thinking of ways to say this in the way that the people will understand, it makes you a better coach. It also makes you sound smarter. People think you use big words and that makes you sound smarter. No, nah. you're only as smart as people can understand. You know, maybe you sound smart. So what doesn't mean you're a good coach. Sounding yeah. smart does not equal being a good coach. Helping people makes you a good coach. And it's really easy in the, the fitness world to feel like you need to sound smart. Because yeah. like the problem is, like certainly in my position, the people I follow in the fitness industry whose content I consume are not the same people that are following me for my content. Yeah. yeah. Because the people I follow are people further along the chain than I am who are doing things that I aspire to or that challenge my thought patterns and things like that. But again, like I've got 20 years experience doing this. And so I that realization of like, stop trying to target the market of people you're influenced by and target the people who are coming to you for your business. Yeah. That realization as well is really powerful. I think too many of us yeah. and, and like, I'm sort of in a position now where I'm trying to do both in terms of like targeting people who want to be coaches and then also mm -hmm. targeting people who want to lift heavy and be athletes themselves right and so having the ability to shift the tone of the discussion you have based on which aspect of the audience you're targeting is an interesting skill um but i think too many of us get caught in that chasing the echo chamber and trying to be a part of it instead of focusing on the people that are actually coming to you for business and yeah doing it that way yeah i mean to give like a lifting equivalent of it it would be like you know who can do the most the heaviest five rep max squat or like who can leg press the most when in reality it we're powerlifters and we actually want to squat on the platform. Yeah. So, you know, these people in their, in, on their Instagram or YouTube videos doing these enormous lifts. And then we all know someone who's done this comes come platform day, they place maybe not even on the, on the podium. And I think that's, that's the kind of, if, you know, to put it in terms we all understand, I think that, yeah, understanding exactly what you're trying to achieve with your social media. And um, I think social media is also changing. Like, I mean, the way that it's going now is obviously they're trying to get more money out of it, the people who are running Instagram and everything. So you're now, um, that they're, they're favoring people who are doing paid ads and things like that. So that means that naturally the way that Instagram is going to go is more businesses because people who aren't making money from Instagram aren't going to be paying for ads really yeah. as much as businesses are. So I think that's going to change the, I think, I think Instagram is going to change quite a bit over the next couple of years.
Um, I mean, it, it already just, has changed dramatically from yeah. like you know the Instagram lifting that we grew up on. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's a totally different world to exist in, and I think for me that's where uh, like the way I use Instagram from a content creation standpoint from the gym has actually shifted in that the content I post on Instagram these days is actually just snippets of what I'm creating for my membership base. And for the vast majority of that, I'm creating that content. So I don't have to have the same discussion over and over. Yeah. Okay. And it comes from a, like a deep seated laziness. Like in, in the, like in running powerlifting comps, I'm, I think we've run now, I've been a meet director for like over 50 powerlifting comps, right? Uh, certainly it'd be maybe even closer to 60 now. Like, A, there aren't many meat directors in Australia that have that level of experience at this point. Yeah. Because they just haven't existed for that long. Or they've left. Or like they've a left. lot of the yeah. ones who started when you were starting have now left. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so there's just things that I do that like it made sense to me to do ages ago. Like yeah. when people sign up for our novice comps, they get sent a YouTube playlist. that's like six videos. And the first one's me like explaining how, like just literally standing in front of the camera on my comp platform, explaining how the day runs, like what to expect, those sort of things. And there's yeah. one about equipment. There's one about rules for the squat, one about rules for the bench, one about rules for the deadlift and yeah. one on like how to use a mono. Yeah. And there's like, you know, maybe 35 minutes of video footage in total, maybe an hour like max. And I now just like the number of fucking hours of discussion I've been saved by just being like, hey, the answers to just about every question you could possibly want are in this video series. Please watch them and then come back and talk to me and I will happily have a more nuanced discussion about it. Yeah. But otherwise I just have the same fucking discussion with everyone. Uh, and so now like it, it gets sent out as an automatic email the second you sign up for a meet. Yeah. Uh, because it just saves me so much fucking time. And it's the same yeah. with like exercise demo videos. It's the same with like I do introductions to training blocks and things like that that are all just based on making my life easier, which like it sounds selfish and, you know, perhaps disingenuous, but I do it in a way that actually drastically improves my ability to perform the service that people are paying me for. Yeah. Because I don't have to spend all this time having these very simple discussions that I can spend half a day recording a three minute video or a five minute video, you know, like the last video I did was like 12 minutes. It took me the better part of six hours of like writing, editing my writing, recording, hanging myself on camera for a while, editing it, like doing all that shit takes a long time. But now I've got this 10 minute video that answers a question that I could have a 45 minute discussion with someone on. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, you're saying that that feels maybe you think that people might perceive that that sounds disingenuous or whatever, but actually like, I think if people feel like that, then they're not the people who you're yeah, trying to attract yeah, I, anyway. I'm totally okay with yeah. that. Yeah. That's but I think that's a common thing. That's yeah. a common thought that people have is this yeah. feels disingenuous, but actually like you then followed up and said it, actually makes you a better coach because you're now able to help more people. And I think that's what a lot of people, um, yeah, when it comes to their business and streamlining their business and using content, especially like you said, to streamline the business, people freak out about it, but actually makes you more free to help the people who you need to help. Imagine if at a doctor's surgery, the doctor was the receptionist and the doctor, like imagine how many less people could come through um, if they just didn't have the system in place that they do. And I think that the fitness industry has always had this sole trader kind of 
grassroots, um, like that's what's built the, the fitness industry to be what it is, is sole traders. Um, and we just haven't adopted some of the systemizing practices that other industries use. Yeah. And, and I think that it's one of those things that gets kind of shouted at you by like, you know, quote unquote business coaches is like, oh, you should have systems and all of those sort of things. And for a long time, people kept saying that to me and I kept reading that and consuming content around that stuff without ever recognizing like, okay, but I don't understand like how to create those systems. And it's only been in the last couple of years, like maybe last three or four years where I've been like, oh, okay, I'm now in a position where like I understand what I'm doing enough and the decisions I'm making to actually be able to reverse engineer this into a systemized process. And, And even then that process itself is actually quite confronting because you have to be able to sit down then and have these discussions with yourself about like, okay, well, why am I making that decision? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm not sure. Just a feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it seems like it'll work. And, yeah. and having that, like I've, I've genuinely found it quite confronting, but also incredibly uh, cathartic and rewarding because it has helped me solidify my understanding in a way that has, yeah. again, made me a much better coach because having those hard conversations with yourself or with someone that you're working with in that environment can be incredibly useful. And I think for me, having people who like my role in, in coaching some of the people that have been members of the gym now for, for many years has shifted from, as I think a good coaching relationship should has shifted from a fairly dictatorial approach early on to like the point where I'm more like a consultant than I am a coach. Uh, and so become a sounding board and having people ask my opinion on like, here's the scenario I'm in. How would you reason out the logic? And, and a lot of the time I stand there and I have the thought process like verbally. And I, I think aloud by having these discussions and asking questions and doing stuff. And it's been really powerful, both as a tool for improving my coaching knowledge and my service, but also then from that content creation standpoint of like, okay, well, if you've asked this question about this really specific aspect of context, how can I take that and make it a more broad discussion about where the context is important and what are the factors that are influencing this? Yeah. I think that's a very thing, like a thing that's very unique as well to the fitness industry um, is that you as a coach are constantly face-to-face with your direct target market. And I think that's not always the case in other industries. Um, you know, using the doctor as an example, the doctor's not going to be sitting there creating blog posts for their medical practice. They're the ones who are seeing people face-to-face. And this is part, this is an it really essential, I think I kind of mentioned it um, earlier, that the first thing I do when I have someone come to get you know, work with me, whether it's to create eBooks, whether it's to create Instagram content, whether it's just as content guidance. The first thing that we do is we go through this strategy session where we basically, it's like when you first have a client come to you and you say, okay, well, what are you currently doing? Like you want to get this result, but I can't help you unless I know where you are right now. And why do you not just do you want to get this result, but why do you want to get this result? I think that's a really important question that coaches, um, that good coaches ask why does being strong, why is that important to you? Um, because sometimes, and I'm sure you've had this before, especially with like weight loss clients, that someone comes to you because they they want to lose weight because, you know, they're told to lose weight. They're told this, they're told this. An actual fact, they just want more confidence mm. and they want to be able to um, 
go to the gym and feel comfortable and feel good and move. And then you offer them powerlifting and they're like, hell yeah, I've found this. I've found my place. And I think that's why powerlifting was such an accepting place um, since its infancy. Um, and I think that question of why, why do you want to do this is really important. Um, so that's kind of what I sit down with my coaches who come to me and we sit down and we say, why do you want to get, you know, why do you want to get more traction on your social media? Is it to grow your business? And which part of your business do you want to grow? Is it your online or your face-to-face? Because if someone's posting up content about their face-to-face coaching and that's all their content, but they say, actually, I'm capped out with my face-to-face and I need to get more online. Okay, well, let's start promoting your online. Um, and who, who is your, who, what kind of people come to your online? What kind of people come to your face-to-face? And so we'll sit down and we'll spend a couple of hours just figuring this out. What kind of people? And it might be that you have, um, nine to five business people coming to your face-to-face, but your online clients are more like rebels and they're more, um, they don't work a normal job. They don't, you know, and it's really hard to talk to some people and say, you know, in other industries, what are your clients? Give me a complete um, profile of what your clients are like. But in the fitness industry, we are dealing with these people and they're our friends and we see them and we chat with them and we have this relationship with them. So that then gives you this incredible opportunity to understand what your clients are looking for and what they need and what they want to know. Um, and so if you can really, you know, the first, the first step is to figure out what you're trying to get out of your content. And then from there, you um, figure out which parts of your business you want to grow. What's your business struggling with at the moment? What, what do you need to work on? And which clients are we trying to target then with your, with your content? And as a result, what comes out of that is, um, is clients feel more heard. The people who are viewing your content, whether they sign up as clients or not, they build this really trusting relationship with you because they feel like you're speaking to them. Yeah. Um, and it, it stops you from just putting out noise. And you yeah. can now have this as like a, as a platform to, to voice your thoughts. And a lot of people who you see do social media really well do this by accident. Yeah. Like the coaches who've risen to great fame on social media, and I'm sure everyone listening to this can think of someone, they probably just did this by accident. Um, just like that powerlifter who peaked and got really strong accidentally on the comp day but didn't know how they did it. This is how we strategize how to do it. Um, and, you know, I had someone actually recently, she came to me because she said she wanted to create some ebooks together. I said, okay, let's do this. Let's do this first. Cause then we'll know who we're trying to create these ebooks for why they're, you know, why we're creating them. And then at the end of it, she said, I don't want to create the ebooks anymore. That's not, I just wanted to do that because that's what I thought you had to do, but actually, no, I can see now this is what I need to work on. I'm like, okay, cool. That's good. Yeah. Um, I, I have changed how I ask that question in those initial consults these days. Because like, you know, early on in learning to be a coach, learning to be a trainer of some description, everyone talks about like smart goals and different goal setting frameworks and stuff like that. And I realized that I was having these conversations with people and they never really got to the point. Yeah. Uh, and so rather now than asking about goals, like the first thing I often ask is like, how did you find us? Like what attracted you to us? What was the thing that tipped you over the edge of, hey, I want to this is something I want to pursue. And mostly because of the way we've, uh, I've sort of developed the business. It's generally around like, oh, you're like, you seem really inclusive and those sort of things, which is yeah. great. Like that's part of what we're trying to do. But then the discussion I have with people is less about what are the goals. And instead I ask the uh, thought exercise of like, okay, well, let's say two to three years from now, assume 
everything you want to do has worked out perfectly. Where are you and where does training fit into your life at that point? Like, what yeah. does your life look like? What do you want to be able to do and not do? And the example I give is like, you know, the, the thing that changed significantly for me in training after having a child was now my only goal in training for at least the next 15 years is to ensure that my four-year-old can't beat me in sport. <laughs> uh, I'm like, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm just going to kick his ass. And I say that jokingly because it makes people laugh and often get a little bit uncomfortable about the concept of me. But you know, the faster way to do that is to just not let him participate in any sports. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's not as fun. That's cruel. That's cruel. Yeah, it's the, winning is the bit I enjoy. Not that's true. Not you distracting him from the competition. You yeah. want a fair competition with a yeah. four-year-old. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and people get a little bit confronted by that, which is always makes me giggle. Uh, and I like I deeply mean it. Like I, I don't doubt that. And, and I would do the same if if it was my child. Exactly. And I um. <laughs> And so by giving them that example, then, you know, it disarms them a little bit because it's a nice, funny anecdote. But so it's it's more deeply, from my point of view, actually about like, well, I don't want my physical capabilities ever to limit my son's life experience. Yeah. Uh, it's just funnier to say I want to kick his ass at sport. And yeah. I like making jokes. And so then. But also yeah. like a, be a role model for your child. Yeah, exactly. All um, of those things. Yeah. Um, and so then it puts them in a position where they have to consider a little bit more about actually what they want to get out of the process. And so often people come with like this idea of like, oh, I want to do X. And we have this, like you say, we have this discussion where it's like, actually, what you want to do isn't X. You just think mm -hmm. it's X. It's actually mm -hmm. like, you know, Q, S and T. And yeah. that's what's actually going to give you the benefit that you want to get out of this process. And it might look very different to what you thought it was going to look like. But if it gets you where you want to go, then, well, that's the goal, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I've used before in this instance, like the analogy of a hairdresser. If I go to the hairdresser and I have a photo of a haircut that I really like and I want this, I've had it before that hairdressers are like, oh, so do you want the layers here or here? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm not the hairdresser. I have got no idea. I'm showing you this photo. And this photo is like, I've had some other hairdressers to me then say, Oh, uh, you know, that was like heavily styled. She was using these styling products. This is what that, to maintain that, this is how that's going to look. And I'm like, oh, actually, no, I don't want that hairstyle. Yeah, yeah. What vibes, how can I get these vibes, but low maintenance? So yeah. it's the same thing. It's like, well, yeah. I want to be this athlete. Well, are you prepared to train every single day? Or what's your nutrition like? Or how does your, the rest of your family um, feel about you taking on this new lifestyle? And if it's going to be a constant uphill battle, then it's not going to work, right? Mm -hmm. So it's- um, yeah, there's this, there's this really cool thing, um, slightly different topic, but um, there's this really cool thing. It's like the five whys, like when someone, yeah, yeah. when someone says that they want this, well, why, you know, go ask five whys and you don't have to do it face to face because it gets a bit weird and probably makes them really frustrated. But from the coach's perspective, your job is like that hairdresser, right? Your job is, this is what this person wants and I need to understand why. So a good hairdresser, when I show them this photo, they would say, what do you like about this? Yeah. Um, which, is it the color? Is it the cut? How do you feel about the length? And I might say, oh, actually, I don't, I don't like the length. I'd like it to be a bit longer. Or um, does this, it, I might say, this just looks so low maintenance. And then they say, actually, this is really high maintenance. Oh, that's not what I want at all. Um, and I think that as as coaches, that's really our job. And that takes a while. Like I remember when I first started out coaching, I didn't have the confidence to tell people, no, this is wrong. What you want is actually something else. Yeah. Um, and also when I started coaching, it was like, I'm a powerlifter. Everyone should be a powerlifter. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like yeah. I didn't know any different. And so that was the only thing I could 
could direct people towards. And now I like, I would argue I coach less powerlifters than I do just like everyday people. Yeah. I've built a gym around the sport and I've, I've built a business around the sport, but actually the vast majority of the people I coach are like at best recreational powerlifters yeah. who do it as just a fun aside to living their life. Um, but increasingly I'm training people who just want to be fit and strong and healthy and, and kick ass in life and, and do those sort of things, which means training just looks a lot different to what it did for us as competitive powerlifters. Uh, yeah. And I think having the versatility of understand, like A, I am fortunate to have built a very versatile facility in that yeah. I don't just have bars and racks. I've got machines now. I've got specialty bars. I've got all of that sort of stuff that gives me the freedom to make better choices for the person in front of me. But also uh, being in a position where I now have a, a good enough understanding of the principles behind the process that then yeah. allows me to take my bias out of the equation and say, how, like, here's what you want to get out of it. What does yeah. that look like? And what's the most effective route for you to get there? Yeah. I think for me, I had a little bit of a different um, background just because I've got this stupid, stupid genetic <laughs> condition that um, basically for like other people, like my condition, Ellis Danlos syndrome, it causes like, like I know other people who are literally disabled by it. Yeah. So when I was competing as a powerlifter, I had to constantly keep that in mind. My training always looks different from other people's. What that told me was you could do a very different strategy and still get the results that you want. Um, it also really taught me, like we were saying before, to train for the competition. You know, mm. like I would, I would train. At one point, I couldn't do a bodyweight squat because my knees were so bad, but I could do a wrap squat. So I just did all my squats and wraps. My first squat was 100 kilos on the back as like with my wraps. I couldn't do any lighter, comfortably do a squat. So, yeah, it, 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 I think that from the start, I never was someone who just trained people to be a powerlifter, I think, because I had that background. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that I guess has given me this broader perspective from earlier on. Um, and it's, yeah, it is very interesting to see. I think probably now there's less coaches. What do you think? Do you think new coaches coming through now are still like, you're a power, I'm a powerlifter. I'm going to train you like a powerlifter. Or do you think that's kind of shifted? Uh, I think if anything, it still exists. And if anything, it might even be a bit worse Really, because new coaches can fall into the echo chamber really quickly. And I think True. people still have a problem with uh, powerlifting and or whatever their gym identity is becoming their entire identity. And that's certainly the experience I had. I, like, I distinctly remember when I changed my Instagram handle that for a long time was like Shara underscore PTC Canberra and then it was just Shara underscore Barely Strength. I had this moment of like sitting there and being like, you know what? When have I ever read someone else's Instagram handle where they've like underscored their business name after their name and then investigated their business because of it? Like never. So someone's probably never looked at my name and been like, oh, underscore belly strength. I wonder what that is. And so that's why my Instagram handle is now just Shero because I remember I it was like a very conscious decision to remove. Yeah the gym, which is a huge part of my identity in, yeah. in terms of like, I have grown up in the gym. This is a business I've now owned since 2016. It is my full-time career. It's my passion and all of those things, but I exist outside of that also. Yeah. And for me, that was a really powerful realization that 
took me a long time to get to. And I've been speaking about the idea of like identity and not letting your pursuits become your entire identity for a long time. And I feel like it's only now that some people are still having that realization. Um, yeah. and I think the, the echo chamber of social media makes it harder to get away from that early. That's true. Actually, that's a, that's a valid point. And I've been on the bad end of that. Yeah. Um, in the sense that like I had to give up powerlifting um, and because of my Ellis Danlos, I'd make jokes that I know I wanted to switch to bodybuilding. No, it was, it was my Ellis Danlos. I tried to bench the other day and I was in pain for like a week. <laughs> so I just can't do it. And um, the identity loss, cause I've been lifting weights since I was 13. I started, you know, when I was 17, I was, I think I was squatting like 130 and like deadlifting 150. Like I was really strong and I was, I'd posted on the bodybuilding forums all my, all through my teens. And that's how I found like um, Ben Polky, who I ended up moving yeah, to the Gold Coast the to train with. OzBB.com. Oz, yeah. Yeah. Um, Aussie, no, Aussie gym junkies. Oh yeah. So Oz, Oz, OzBB was where like uh, Marcus and the PTC crew originated. Yeah. Like they moved over from, I think it was like NissanSylvia.com or some it was weird, the weird car forum. Yeah. It was this weird um, crossover with the car forums that I never fully understood yeah, why everyone neither. just knew all this stuff about cars. And I was like, I'm just here for the gym, but okay. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. So then I was, you know, moved to the Gold Coast at 18 to train, started powerlifting, um, got to the top, like set all these records and then um, life happened and then I couldn't. And the amount of identity that I lost from that was really, really hard. Yeah. Um, and, and hard to come back from. You know? and yeah. Like, we could sit here without, and Thomas and I have talked about this in the past, we are now of a generation of competitive powerlifters. We could sit here and probably spend the next 30 minutes naming off the top of our head 150 or more lifters who were going to be the next big thing and then we've never heard from again. Yeah. Because it's so easy in something like powerlifting because it be it can become so all-consuming. And I can only imagine that bodybuilding is like another level on top of that because of the like 24-7 nature of the demands of it. Yeah. But it becomes so all-consuming that you get really good at it fast. And, you know, in some cases, maybe you start taking some drugs and you get even better at it really fast. Yeah. And then you get to this point that's like somewhere between 18 months and three years. And I like yeah. I've watched this happen both to clients and to friends and all this stuff where somewhere inside the first 18 months to three years of your training career or competitive career, you will likely come up against some serious hurdle and it will either be an injury or a lifestyle factor or something like that, that just prevents it from being as easy as it once was. Yeah. Maybe it's a shitty meat that comes off the back of a really stressful time or something like that, or it's a minor injury that becomes less of a minor injury, more of a serious issue, Yeah, it's something like that. And it's the people that get up against that and then disappear are the ones that are often have wrapped their entire identity around it. Yeah. And so get to this point where they're like, well, I don't have anything else to do and I can't do this thing that I want to do. So I don't do it anymore. And like, you know, as yeah. a, a very real example in, in my life, it's like, I haven't put a straight bar on my back to squat in like a good couple of years. Cause I'm now like the better part of 30 kilos lighter than I was at my heaviest. But I also know how much of a fucking meathead I am 
that I'm like, I would go out there right now and I would put a bar on my back and I'd squat like a hundred kilos and it'd feel really fucking hard. And I'd be furious. And six weeks from now, I'd be 140 again and really strong and I'd hate it. Yeah. Uh, but I know like I've put myself in a position where I still am having tr- a hard time removing big, fat, strong John from my identity. Uh, and, w- and that'll continue to be a problem for a long time. we don't need that thank you i actually um something that really brought this concept to mind was i was reading this book um it's called mindset by i don't don't know can i remember if it's carol dweck or caroline dweck but basically um dr dweck um is one of the leading uh researchers on mindset and she kind of was one of the first people to look into the idea of like the growth versus the fixed mindset um and do you know much about like the growth Fixed. Yeah, like sort of scarcity and abundance and that sort of realm. Uh, yes, but I kind of had a general idea of it and I was like, oh, yeah, cool, whatever, everyone's talking about this. And when I actually like looked into what it was, I was like, this is completely game changing. Yeah, so okay. it's like the idea of a fixed mindset is based on this idea that talent and um, that your ability to do something is based on your natural talent. Mm. And therefore, practice doesn't necessarily make you any better. And people who work hard, are considered like losers because they have to work hard for something that I'm naturally good at, like whatever. But what that also means is failure is absolute. So if you're someone with a fixed mindset and you're doing something and you're great at it, and then the moment you fail, it's like, well, I'm, this is a reflection on me as a person. Yeah. yeah I'm a bad versus person. A gross, a growth mindset is this idea that like, yes, I might not ever be able to get to the top maybe because there are certain genetic factors and, you know, environmental factors that are at play. However, I can get better by working on things and talent doesn't take you anywhere near as far as hard work does. And failure is an opportunity to learn. And I think that for me, like with my autoimmune condition, I've been like, my knees used to dislocate when I was a kid all the time. Like um, I remember some of my earliest memories were just pain from this stupid condition. And so what happened when I hit powerlifting was, well, firstly, it helped me mediate um, my injuries because I was lifting weights and my hypermobile joints weren't dislocating as much. But mm. um, it also meant that any injury I faced, it's just like, whatever, like pro raw six, my ankles dislocated halfway through my final squat. <laughs> and I came off the stage and I was like, Thomas, my ankles just dislocated. He's like, it's okay. You got the squat. I was like, what? And then afterwards, like a couple of weeks later, I was like, yeah, you know how my ankles dislocated with my squat? He's like, wait, what? (laughs) What? Everyone's like that. So yeah, that was just like for most people. And I was like, oh, it was fine because like my ankles always dislocate when I'm training. Um, So it, but a lot of other people, I think, see things as this is final. This is absolute. Yeah, yeah. Um, And any way that you can do to work on adopting that growth mindset, I think can be really helpful. And I mean, coming back to the content thing, that's, that's also with that, right? If I'm good at social media, the people who are naturally good at social media and naturally do it well, they're just good at it. They've got something about them. That's, that's just good versus maybe I can track my metrics and figure out who I'm working. Yeah. And like, maybe everyone's content looks rubbish when they first start. And maybe this is something I can get better at. Um, And it's that feeling of this is within my control, but I have to put in work. And that's actually a really nice feeling to have. Um, I think it's a really powerful lesson uh, and one that can be learned in a really safe and controllable way in like in the gym environment, right? Because you can push yeah. to failure, you can fail safely, you can do all those things in what feels like you're risking something and makes it like the stakes are high, but it's not actually 
really that risky in the scheme of things. Yeah. And so you give it gives you the tools then to face that failure in other areas of your life and be able to move through it. Yeah. And I think for me, and I'm not sure why I've got this, but like one of my, um, I think my greatest strengths is just being able to continue despite catastrophic failure. (laughs) Like who else would have continued powerlifting after going two for nine? Can you imagine some of your new clients now, if they went two for for nine at a competition, they would be like, screw this. I was crying. I was crying all the rest. Like I, I, I just like, I remember being on the phone to my parents afterwards and I was like, ah, I'm like, I've got to come up with a strategy to do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like everything I do that I'm good at, I've sucked at. Like yeah. not just a little bit, I've really, really sucked, sucked at. Yeah. I um, had, there was someone I was listening to the other day and I can't remember who it was, which is really annoying because it was really good. But they were asked like uh, a question like, uh, you know, what, what do you feel like is your like greatest strength? Uh, and it was like, some answer to the effect of like, I'm acutely aware of my failings and uh, it's the ability to be acutely aware of them. Who was it? Fuck. It was some famous Australian. Oh, it was Will Anderson. Uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. And he was talking about, they were like, you know, what's your biggest strength? And he said, my biggest strength is I'm acutely aware of my, incredible and like prevalent flaws like and listed off all these things and the host was like tried to almost talk him down from that framework and he was like no no no, you don't understand i'm I'm acutely aware of all of these things (laughs) and on top of that these are all the things that i'm really shit at and i do it anyway yeah like these are all reasons to not do something but then instead i'm just like very aware of them and then i just fuck do it anyway yeah yeah and i think that's like, I mean, everyone, when you get down to it, has something. Everyone who's successful at what they do has some component of that success that they suck at. Yeah. Like, I'm sure that, like, all of the Elon Musks of the world really suck at something. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe, you know, I said before, like, what, why I'm so, why that, uh, that seems to be a trait of mine. Um, I have, like, a lot of role models who are, like, terrible in some way but have become excellent at what they do. Um, and like that for me is one of the best, um, kind of role models that you can have is someone who like one of my biggest role models, my great aunt, I've unfortunately never got to meet her, but she was completely deaf and she was a, um, professor of gynecology, obstetrics and gynecology. And like, as a woman in the fifties to become a professor when you're completely deaf is just insane. And she just like traveled the world, setting up hospitals all around the place. I was like, that's really cool. Um, and I'm sure that there were times when she was like, I really suck at this, (laughs) but it's yeah. And then that can, I think your suck, the things you suck at can become a strength. Like for me with the Ellis Danlos thing, like I now have a following of people with Ellis Danlos who want to lift weights. So that's like that it, it can become, it can become, I think that, you know, coming back to the content idea again, like it's, I don't think that, I think that there was also this wave of like, this trend in the fitness industry a number of years ago, and particularly among women and particularly among female strength coaches, where it was like, you have to talk about your flaws Mm. and you have to like express them vulnerable, vulnerable. but like some of them, I'm like, I don't actually see you as that. And I I don't actually think you're those things. And like, why do we have to, why do we have to talk about this? Why do we have to like, I get the whole like social media is a highlights real thing, but like, what do you want me to do? Post about like how sad I am all the time? (laughs) Like, no. Um, So yeah, I think that, 
I think that was really overplayed and that made me really disappointed in my community of female strength coaches in the sense that like, I actually, you know, I don't think we need to talk about, you know, everyone hates their bodies sometimes. I was like, I don't, I don't have these feelings. Um, and I didn't, you know, everyone, oh, I, I tried every diet. I'm like, I didn't. I wanted to be Iris Kyle when I was 15, <laughs> like very different story. And I think that um, it can be a strength to talk about your struggles, but it needs to be your struggles. It needs to be very genuine yeah. to you. Um, and I think it can, there are ways that you can do it in a nice way and ways that you can do it in a way that's a bit like, yeah. Gross. Yeah. A bit gross. Yeah. A bit gross. Cause it, it, it then breeds that, right. It yeah. breeds that within, if I went around saying like, Oh, with my Ella's Danlos, I feel like I'm no good at anything and I can't, I can't fit in and I can't do this. It's like, no, that's not how I talk about it. No. You know? no. Um, and it, it creates a, an ongoing cycle of that sort of, you know, semi miserable state constantly. Cause that's all you're doing is focusing on these things you can't do or these things that you feel like are these huge flaws instead of looking at all the things that you're really fucking good at and you can do really yeah. well on those sort of things. Yeah. So at the start, when you asked like the question about like content in the fitness industry, I think that's something that that was really prominent a number of years ago. And I'm very happy that we've moved away from it. I think it still exists a little bit, but um, I think that people are realizing that actually they've got more to offer than just appealing to people's emotions. They've got actually all this really cool information yeah. um, that they can offer to people. And I think that's um that's like what you said before, how you walk around and you're like, I don't have anything to post. And then you realize that you're walking around all day saying things that are really cool. I think that's, um, that is a great place to start with content creation stuff. Excellent. Um, before we get too off track and end up in a position where we just have recorded a seven hour podcast, cause neither mm -hmm. of us stopped talking. Could happen. Uh, let's wrap things up there. We have four questions that we normally oh. ask our guests. I am going to work really hard to remember all four of them and probably not remember all four of them. You can the ask a different one, question if you want, if you can't I can, but then one. it doesn't work with the continuity aspect. We've true, been doing true, this true. long enough now that we're stuck in tradition and right. uh, sunk cost fallacy. So it has to be continued. That sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> yeah. um, so the first one is like your favorite lifting memory. And for people like you have had experience both as an athlete and in a coaching sense, I like asking about your favorite lifting memory from both an athlete performance standpoint and then from a like coaching standpoint. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, my favorite, like I often think about the pro raw six um, last, like my final pull for pro raw six. So it, it was took like seven and a half hours. To it, get off the I'm yeah. I'm notoriously slow off the floor with my sumos. Um, and like that you can go and make a cup of coffee while Annie starts her pool and come back to the end of it. I'd encourage it actually. It makes yeah. the competition, it makes everything a lot more enjoyable for you as a spectator. It's a great um, way to build tension. I'll admit you do an excellent job of building tension in, <laughs> uh, in the atmosphere of the environment, especially because it's often, at least in my experience of standing next to a platform that you're grinding out a third deadlift on, it's often for the win yeah. uh, in a way that makes it incredibly nail biting, which is great. Maybe it's just a dramatic flair that you've got. It was actually part of my PR. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would have long this ago. This is my brand. <laughs> yeah, I would have long ago claimed that as an intentional thing. Yeah. Because uh, I think you really could have ridden that wave for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I also got known as someone who like pulled things out of a hat. For competitions yes. and I think that was part of the reason was that even to the moment the last five seconds you just didn't know yeah exactly yeah cool so yeah I think that that competition was like a big one I'd cut I cut a lot of weight I did a lot of 
bad things to my body to get to that point in terms of like the water cut. I just, yeah, I was 10 kilos over. Four hour weigh in or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it was for a four hour weigh in and it was for like, because it was for the big prize money, but Pro Raw 6 had just under 70 and over 70. And I was like, it's okay, I'll get lean. And then I just, I just couldn't cut the weight. Like my body was just holding onto the weight and I came in at 80 kilos. I had to cut 10 kilos the week before. So it was a lot of water cutting, a lot of hot baths. And I even was drinking like distilled water at one point. That was awful. Um, But yeah, it came down to the final deadlift and I, I won on, I think two and a half kilos. So that was my favorite coaching memory. My uh, sorry, lifting memory, my favorite coaching memory. I had this old client, Bernard. He was like this 80 year old guy who came to me. Um, he had no cartilage in his knees. Um, he had a history of doing yoga. He was really good at yoga, um, but he just wanted to yeah, build some muscle. So we couldn't actually do a deadlift off the floor because he, like his knees were really bad. So I worked him just a very, very, very high um, rack pull. And then we slowly over time built his strength and then lowered the rack down, lowered the rack down, lowered the rack down. Eventually got him deadlifting like a hundred kilos off the floor. And there was this one time I was like, hey, Bernard, do you mind if I film this and put it on my social media? Because I've told a couple of my friends about you and they just love you. And he said, okay. I said, all right, we're just doing this 100 kilos for one rep. Okay. As soon as I pull out the camera, he starts wrapping it out. He gets like three or four reps in. And it was like, oh, Bernard, you're a sweetheart. Like, and every time I'd take his measurements, he'd like be flexing his biceps as hard as he could to, when I measured his biceps. So that was, I think he's definitely my favorite coaching yeah. memory. Excellent. Uh, so then the next one is if you could sit down for dinner and or a meal with anyone in the world, caveat being they have to be alive, who would it be? Hmm. Hmm. Can I, can I think about this and get back to you? So my answer for a long time that I've had to change and haven't done enough thinking about was, uh, Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain, because I really wanted to sit down and meet someone like that who was super influential in like my love of cooking and those sort of things. Uh, I think Thomas had uh, his first answer was uh, Heston Blumenthal, um, the chef, because he was like entirely self-taught and really liked that aspect of it. Um, Right. So, yeah, I mean, you're welcome to come back to it if you would like. I'd like to come back at the end, please. Okay, cool. Um, (laughs) The... There's one other question I just can't remember. Maybe it was only three questions. Who knows? Thomas will probably listen to this and harass me for not remembering these <laughs> questions. Um, the sort of most important one is, uh, you know, from a position of you know, extensive experience in lifting now, if you could give one piece of advice to the beginner, uh, what would it be? And I think usefully in this scenario, given what you do now, uh, I think I would like to hear one piece of useful advice for a lifter or person getting into training. And then I want to hear a piece of advice for a new or aspiring coach in the industry. Okay. So someone getting into training, um, I would say to find something that makes you really, really love it. And it doesn't have to be an obvious reason. So this is actually something I've never told anyone before, but it's been weighing on me a little bit. Exclusive. Yeah. So everyone, I started lifting when I was 13. I used to go to the school gym um, religiously. Like at first my mom only said only one day a week. So I was like 13. And then my strength coach convinced her to let me start taking creatine and coming four days a week. So this was a huge change for me. Um, And my, yeah. Anyway, so everyone has just always thought that I've 
I really like the gym for these like wholesome reasons. I had a crush on one of the guys at the school gym. <laughs> just wanted to come back every time <laughs> for four years. Yeah. Got me through. And so you never know where inspiration and motivation can come from. And like, you people could just think, be a horny teenager. People think, oh, that's bad that she. And 15 years later, here you but are. Get me. My whole career has been yeah. built off this. And I'm sure he doesn't even lift anymore. Yeah, exactly. But it's amazing. Yeah. So that for me is like, you know, whether it be your friends going along to the gym, whether it be, um, yeah, that you have a crush on your. I don't know, someone at the gym, your gym crash, whatever, lean into that. I think that very unconventional. No, uh, I like it. But wisdom nonetheless. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And for aspiring coaches, hmm, the coaching thing is tricky because I think it's a very different climate from when I started out as a coach. Oh, yeah, Um, entirely different. And I would say like a couple of years ago, I probably would have said, get good at what you do, get strong. But there's a lot of coaches out there who are really strong and really good at what they do. Um, I think find your niche. That's my big thing. Um, there's, um, some really good, like business books out there that really just talk about finding your niche. And I think when you find your niche, like people, the people around you no longer are competition. They're your colleagues and you want Mm. each other to win. Right. Like I, I've done the whole, you know, when we were part, when I was back owning a gym in Queensland, other powerlifting coaches poaching clients from us. And it was just awful. Like it was Mm. an awful world to exist in. But thankfully, I mean, I'm not in that world anymore as a coach, but it seems like there's less of that now. There definitely Um, seems to be less of it, yeah. Yeah, and find a coach- It still exists for sure, but yeah, on the same scale. Yeah, I think- I think the find a niche thing appeals to me, especially because I'm the kind of person to just, if I want to be the best in the world at something, I just find something that nobody else does. So hence why I play like really weird musical instruments, like the double bass. Nobody plays that. I watched you try and learn the unicycle. I've seen you obsess about weird things and I'm all Yeah. Yeah. And even powerlifting back in the day used to be that thing for me. So I think find your space to exist in and then like take up that space. And it doesn't have to be, it can, there are things that are unique, you know, what's that thing? Like there's no one more you than you. Like there are things that, you know, there are other people with, you know, let's say I'm coaching people with my autoimmune condition. There are doctors who know way more about it than I do. Mm. And there are people who are way stronger in powerlifting than I do, but there's nobody meeting that gap of people who have this condition who want to live within my world. And so I've attracted a lot of people without even trying who, who want that gap filled. Um, so I think find something that's uniquely you and, you know, like you said um, that your gym is attractive to people because of it's being so inclusive. And I think that's something that's very unique in the powerlifting world is some, is a gym that's that inclusive of so many different people. Um, and I think people, people, you think, oh, people are coming to me for powerlifting. No, people are coming to you because they want somewhere that they can feel comfortable and where they fit in and they want their crew. Yeah. Um, so yeah, find something that's uniquely you. Cool. So to circle back to who do you want to eat dinner with? Um, uh, I'm weird because what I do is if I want to hang out with someone, I, think, I just like make it my whole life mission to hang out with them. So I. So who's next on your hit list then is the real question. 
Who's next on my hit list? There has actually been a few people. I'm just relentless. Well, I've got to go to America for it. So I've just got to go. I've been messaging a whole bunch of people and I've just got to go over to America and just meet them. Um, but I'm talking like top level strength coaches who I want to do work with. I just messaged all of them and I was, you know, like like that story I told of like hanging out with Andre Milanachev in surfers. Like I just messaged him when he was on the Gold Coast and I was like, hey, are you training? I'd love to say hi and get a picture. And then a group of us went out and trained together and had drinks and surfers. And I think powerlifting's given me this unreasonable expectation of the fact that the highest level celebrity within your it's world super is, is someone who's really accessible. But yeah, like Ed Cohn has been in my house. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I've been clubbing with Ed. I've had yeah, pe- yeah. people since have been like, oh my God, not like they're talking about someone. I'm like, oh, do you know this palace? They're like, oh, not Ed Cohen. And I'm like, oh, that's not who I was talking about. But also that's very interesting that you have that like, yeah. Yeah. It's you. We forget, I think, that we, again, came of age in a very unique world in that respect because now it's it's a little bit more diluted. And so I think that accessibility still very much exists in many ways, but it's not on the same scale that it did when we were like in the thick of it really. Yeah. So I don't know. And I've got this weird thing as well, where I like to just be the most extreme version of things. So in terms of who I'd hang out with, I I don't know where you get that from. (laughs) Yeah. Where's yeah. It just (sighs) doesn't sound like me. Um, I would, I would hang out with some, uh, I don't know. So I, yeah, maybe someone who's just like inaccessible, like I don't know, a world president or something like that, Trump, because everyone hates him, and I'd just be like, oh, I had I had dinner the, with Trump the other day, <laughs> like just to be just, able to say that. Just for a good like, story. I, I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I'm not as you know, I'm not wearing the Trump hat. I'm not a supporter. I, you know, but I did have dinner with him. Um, so not everyone can say that. That is fantastic. And I think a perfect note to leave it on, uh, Annie Short, Trump supporter. No, Uh, no, stop, stop, (laughs) stop. I was hesitant to say anyone more polarizing because I didn't want to. Yeah. Perfect. So, uh, where can people find you and your services and how can they get in touch, et cetera? Yeah, so I am, you can find me on Instagram, Muscle Writer, um, or I've got um, my website, www.musclewriter.com. Email is Annie at musclewriter.com. And in terms of my services, um, I do content creation for strength coaches um, and general fitness brands as well. Um, But I'm also about to start up some small group um, like content strategy sessions for coaches because what I was finding was a lot of coaches don't necessarily want to pay, you know, it can be expensive to hire someone to create content for you, um, but they just need some strategy in there. So I'm going to start up some weekly group sessions. Um, And there's a lot to be said for being in a a room full of people who are thinking similarly but slightly differently to you and being able to have those conversations. That's really cool. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that it's like to get that face-to-face time would be really tricky um, with all these people. But, yeah, it's it's a. I think it'll be good and then, you know, it'll have – probably some like weekly accountability. So like what, you know, this was the challenge that we set last week, like what each person, what did you guys do um, to achieve this? And yeah, going through a different principle, um, you know, we've touched on some of them today about like some of the different principles of content creation and how to do it and be more authentic to you and be more 
of, yeah, what are your values and how can you let that shine through with your content creation? Awesome. That sounds really exciting. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Thank you yeah, for coming. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. Doing this again at some point. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Awesome. All right. Give us a five-star review and tell your friends. Goodbye. Bye.